Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from The Voice of America. I'm Pete Musto. And I'm Dorothy Gundy. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, you will hear the English Expression Teaching Series, Words and Their Stories, with Ana Mateo. Later, Steve Ember brings us the latest in the ongoing American History Series, Making of a Nation. But first, the English for a Specific Purpose Series, with John Russell. By the year 2020, some two billion people in the world will be using English or learning to use it. Digital English language learning products and services are worth about $2.5 billion a year. That estimate comes from the British Council, an international cultural and educational program based in Britain. The increasing demand for English has led many people to explore careers in teaching the language. Being a native speaker is not necessary to teach English. In fact, some experts say that being a non-native speaker can be very useful when teaching English. Today, we speak with one of those experts. Her name is Bobby Kruchen. She is a certified teacher-trainer for the Certificate of Language Teaching to Adults, or CELTA, from the University of Cambridge, Royal Society of Arts. Bobby Kruchen holds a master's degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages, or TESOL, from Hunter College in New York City. She has been teaching at the American Language Program at Columbia University since 1999. VOA Learning English spoke to her by telephone recently. Our interview has been shortened for the purposes of this program. How did you get into your teaching career? So I, get, I got into my field by accident. <laughs> Um, I was actually an art student in Brazil, and when I started college, a school where I had uh, studied ESL as an after-school program invited me to teach small kids. And I started teaching small kids, and I enjoyed it. Where was the school? That school, that school is called Lollipop, and it's in Porto Alegre, Brazil, where I'm from. How did you get from teaching at that school to teaching at Columbia University? So I taught at that school, and then I, I transferred my major from art to languages. And then I went and I, I wanted to live in an English-speaking country. So I lived in the UK for a year where I did my CELTA training, uh, which is a certificate program. Then I came back to Brazil I continued teaching at a, at a bigger school called Britannia. And then I started training teachers. I went from being a teacher to being a teacher trainer in Brazil, and I was training through the CELTA program. And then I moved to the U.S., and I decided to do a master's in TESOL. And then my career kind of took off. I taught at many different programs in New York as an adjunct professor until I got a full-time position at Columbia. What skills do you need for your profession, aside from English language skills? So I think first and foremost, yes, interpersonal communication skills, because teaching is all about uh, teaching other people. Um, and a, a great awareness of who my students are at many levels, like at the personal level, at an academic level, at a critical 
thinking skills level. So there is a lot of student awareness that goes hand in hand with teaching. So in other words, there is the content and and the person who's right in front of you, and you are addressing the person. And then thinking of myself, I have to have great organizational skills to organize materials and the classes and the student assignments, so on and so forth. So I think if somebody wanted to go into teaching, they would have to think about being organized, having interpersonal skills, to some degree public speaking, because if you have a fear of speaking in front of other people, I wouldn't recommend that career because you are in front of a classroom and addressing them. Some leadership uh, skills, because you do have to tell students what to do and how to go about doing tasks. And a a great deal of creativity, I think, uh, to create interesting lessons. How do you recommend that people develop their teaching skills? Is there a good resource for developing these skills? A resource is always feedback from colleagues, having peer observations or uh, developmental observations. In other words, the idea that it's never ready, you're never done, you never know it all. And also uh, keeping at the back of my mind um, that professional development is important. So attending conferences and reading uh, in the field and trying out new things. So being aware of what's new. And I think a great deal of reflective thinking. I think with teaching, one needs to evaluate what happened. Sometimes at the beginning of your career, it's good to discipline oneself and do it more rigorously. That's right, a reflective feedback of the lesson I've just taught. But then as you become um, more experienced, I think it's also very important to look back and say, was this a good class? Was this a good semester? what worked, what needs to be improved. What recommendations do you have for those who are thinking of entering the teaching profession? I think the first question is, like, do you really want to be a teacher? I have somebody I know who thought they wanted to become a teacher, and when they actually went into the field, they realized the amount of work it is. It's a tremendous amount of work, so I think one needs to to be aware of that, that you need to like it, because if you don't like it, it's not something that you can just jump through the hoops. And the other thing I think people need to be aware of is that in terms of compensation, teaching is a profession that um, is not very well paid, but also to think about how rewarding it is to meet people from different cultures and to know that you you learn all the time from your students. What recommendations do you have for English learners who would like to pursue a career in teaching English? Right. I would say that um, being a non-native speaker teacher of English as a second language is an asset because, like your students, you have gone through the process of learning the language you are better equipped to understand what they are going through. Whereas if English is your first language, you may not empathize with what it's like to learn a second language. If you think not being a native speaker of English is an obstacle, um, you're wrong, because it's actually something that gives you another set of skills. Is there something that you would like to add with respect to becoming a teacher? No, I would say it's a very rewarding field because it is intellectually stimulating and you are involved with other people and you can use your creativity. I think those would be my final words. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Have a pleasant day. Okay, thanks. Nice talking to you. Bye. Yeah, good talking to you too. I'm John Russell. Now, the VOA Learning English program, Words and Their Stories. On this program, we explain American English expressions a little more in-depth. 
Like many languages, English has many expressions that come from the world of animals. Today, we hear about a beautiful bird that gives us a rather sad expression. Christopher Jones Cruz brings us that story. The white swan, with its long, graceful neck, is among the most beautiful of birds. The swan is mostly silent through its life. It floats quietly on the water, unable to sing sweet songs like most other birds. In ancient times, however, people believed that the swan was given a special gift of song at the end of its life. They believed a swan sings a most beautiful song just before it dies. The ancient Greek philosopher Socrates talked of this more than 2,300 years ago. Socrates explained that the swan was singing because it was happy. The bird was happy because it was going to serve the Greek god Apollo. Swans were holy to Apollo, the god of poetry and song. The story of the swan's last song found a place in the works of other writers, including the early English writers Chaucer and Shakespeare. And the expression swan song has long been a part of the English language. At first, swan song meant the last work of a poet, musician, or writer. Now it means the final effort of any person. Someone's swan song usually is also considered that person's finest work. A political expression with a similar meaning is the last hurrah. The expression may be used to describe a politician's last campaign, his final attempt to win the cheers and votes of the people. The last hurrah also can mean the last acts of a politician before his term in office ends. Writer Edwin O'Connor made the expression popular in 1956. He wrote a book about the final years in the political life of a longtime mayor of Boston, Massachusetts. He called his book The Last Hurrah. Some language experts say the expression came from a name given to noisy supporters of Andrew Jackson, America's seventh president. They cheered hurrah so loudly for Andy Jackson during his presidential campaign that they became known as the hurrah boys. Jackson's hurrah boys also played a part in the election to choose the next president. Jackson's choice was his vice president, Martin Van Buren. A newspaper of the time reported that Van Buren was elected president, in its words, by the hurrah boys, and those who knew just enough to shout hurrah for Jackson. So President Jackson really heard his last hurrahs in the campaign of another candidate, the man who would replace him in the White House. And that brings us to the end of this Words and Their Stories. Join us again next week as we explore more common expressions in American English. Until next time, I'm Ana Mateo. the making of a nation american history in voa special english i'm steve ember
On a cold October day in 1957, the Soviet Union launched a small satellite into orbit around the Earth. Radio Moscow made the announcement. The first artificial Earth satellite in the world has now been created. This first satellite was today successfully launched in the USSR. The world's first satellite was called Sputnik 1. Sputnik was an important propaganda victory for the Soviets in the Cold War with the United States. Many people believed the nation that controlled space could win any war, and the Soviet Union had reached outer space first. The technology that launched Sputnik probably began in the late 19th century. A Russian teacher of that time, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, decided that a rocket engine could provide power for a space vehicle. In the early 1900s, another teacher, American Robert Goddard, tested the idea. He experimented with small rockets to see how high and how far they could travel. In 1923, a Romanian student in Germany, Hermann Obert, showed how a spaceship might be built and launched to other planets. Rocket technology improved during World War II. It was used to produce flying bombs. Thousands of people in Britain and Belgium died as a result of V-1 and V-2 rocket attacks. The rockets were launched from Germany. The larger V-2 rocket had the ability to hit the United States. After the war, it became clear that the United States and the Soviet Union, allies in wartime, would become enemies in peacetime. So both countries employed German scientists to help them win the race to space. The Soviets took the first step by creating Sputnik. This satellite was about the size of a basketball. It got its power from a rocket. It orbited Earth for three months. Within weeks, the Soviets launched another satellite into Earth orbit, Sputnik 2. It was much bigger and heavier than Sputnik 1. It also carried a passenger, a dog named Laika. The United States joined the space race about three months later. It launched a satellite from Cape Canaveral in the southeastern state of Florida. The satellite was called Explorer 1. It weighed about 14 kilograms. Explorer 1 went into a higher orbit than either Sputnik, and its instruments made an important discovery. They found an area of radiation about 960 kilometers above Earth. The next major space victory belonged to the Soviets. They sent the first man into space. In April 1961, cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was launched in the vehicle known as Vostok. He remained in space for less than two hours. He landed safely by parachute near a village in Russia. Less than a month later, the United States sent its first astronaut into space. He was Alan Shepard. Shepard remained in space only about 15 minutes. He did not go into Earth orbit. That flight came in February 1962 with John Glenn. By 1965, the United States and the Soviet Union were experimenting to see if humans could survive outside a spacecraft. In March, Russian cosmonaut Alexei Leonov became the first person to do so. A strong tether 
connected Leonov to the spacecraft. The tether gave him oxygen to breathe, and it permitted him to float freely at the other end. After about 10 minutes, Leonov had to return to the spacecraft. He said he regretted the decision. He was having such a good time. A little more than two months later, an American would walk outside his spacecraft. Astronaut Edward White had a kind of rocket gun. This gave him some control of his movements in space. Like Leonov, White was sorry when he had to return to his spacecraft. Later that year, 1965, the United States tried to have one spacecraft get very close to another spacecraft while in orbit. This was the first step in getting spacecraft to link or dock together. Docking would be necessary to land men on the moon. The plan called for a Gemini spacecraft carrying two astronauts to get close to an unmanned satellite. The attempt failed. The target satellite exploded as it separated from its main rocket. America's space agency decided to move forward. It would launch the next in its Gemini series. Then someone had an idea. Why not launch both Geminis? The second one could chase the first one instead of a satellite. Again, things did not go as planned. It took two tries to launch the second Gemini. By that time, the first one had been in orbit about 11 days. Time was running out. The astronauts on the second Gemini moved their spacecraft into higher orbits. They got closer and closer to the Gemini ahead of them. They needed to get within 600 meters to be considered successful. After all the problems on the ground, the events in space went smoothly. The two spacecraft got within one-third of a meter of each other. The astronauts had made the operation seem easy. In January 1959, the Soviets launched a series of unmanned lunar rockets. The third of these flights took pictures of the far side of the moon. This was the side no one on Earth had ever seen. The United States planned to explore the moon with its unmanned Ranger spacecraft. There were a number of failures before Ranger 7 took pictures of the moon. These pictures were made from a distance. The world did not get pictures from the surface of the moon until the Soviet Luna 9 landed there in February 1966. For the next few years, both the United States and the Soviet Union continued their exploration of the moon. Yet the question remained, which one would be the first to put a man there? In December 1968, the United States launched Apollo 8 with three astronauts. The flight proved that a spacecraft could orbit the moon and return to Earth safely. The Apollo 9 spacecraft had two vehicles. One was the command module. It could orbit the moon, but could not land on it. The other was the lunar module. On a flight to the moon, it would separate from the command module and land on the moon's surface. Apollo 10 astronauts unlinked the lunar module and flew it close to the moon's surface. 
After those flights, everything was ready. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. On July 16, 1969, three American astronauts lifted off in Apollo 11. On the 20th, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin entered the lunar module called the Eagle. Michael Collins remained in the command module, the Columbia. The two vehicles separated. It was a dangerous time. The Eagle could crash, or it could fall over after it landed. That meant the astronauts would die on the moon. Millions of people watched on television or listened on the radio. They waited for Armstrong's message. Base here. The, Eagle has landed. the Eagle has landed. Then they waited again. It took the astronauts more than three hours to complete the preparations needed to leave the lunar module. Finally, the door opened. Neil Armstrong climbed down first. He put one foot on the moon, then the other foot, and then came his words from so far away. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Man on the moon. Oh, boy. Boy. <laughs> CBS television newsman Walter Cronkite shared the excitement that he and so many people felt as man first walked on the surface of the moon. Later, Cronkite would remember the historical significance of that moment in 1969. It was hard, I think, to imagine uh, our emotions at the moment. It really was something that, that had to grip you. It was uh, as if you could have stood at the dock and, uh, and waved goodbye to Columbus. You, you knew darn good and well that, that this was the real history in the making. Armstrong walked around. Soon, Aldrin joined him. They're setting up the flag now. The two men placed an American flag on the surface of the moon. They also collected moon rocks and soil. When it was time to leave, they returned to the Eagle and guided it safely away. They reunited with the Columbia and headed for home. The United States had won the race to the moon. The thing that made this one particularly uh, gripping was that, uh, that was that sense of history, that uh, if this was successful, this was a date that was going to be in all of the history books from time evermore. I think we sensed that at the time, just sitting there at the Cape and watching that great beast uh, get on its way, uh, that this, this was it. And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Pete Musto. And I'm Dorothy Gundy.
The Blue Hotel, Part 2. I think you are tongue-tied, says Scully, finally to his son, the cowboy, and the Easterner. And at the end of this sentence, he left the room. Upstairs, the Swede was closing his bag. His back was half-turned towards the door. And hearing a noise there, he turned and jumped up, uttering a loud cry. Scully's face was frightening in the light of the small lamp he carried. This yellow shine, streaming upward, left his eyes in deep shadows. He looked like a murderer. Man! Man! exclaimed Scully. Have you gone mad? Oh no! Oh no! answered the other. There are people in this world who know nearly as much as you do, understand? For a moment they stood gazing at each other. Then Scully placed the light on the table and sat himself on the edge of the bed. He spoke slowly. I never heard of such a thing in my life. It's a complete mystery. I can't think how you ever got this idea into your head. Then Scully lifted his eyes and asked, And did you really think they were going to kill you? The Swede looked at the old man as if he wished to see into his mind. I did, he said at last. He apparently thought that this answer might cause an attack. As he worked on his bag, his whole arm shook, the elbow trembling like a bit of paper. Having finished with his bag, the Swede straightened himself. Mr. Scully, he said with sudden courage, how much do I owe you? You don't owe me anything, said the old man angrily. Yes, I do answered the Swede. He took some money from his pocket and held it out to Scully, but the latter moved his hand away in firm refusal. I won't take your money, said Scully. Not after what's been happening here. Then a plan seemed to come to him. Here, he cried, picking up his lamp and moving towards the door. Here, come with me a minute. No, said the Swede. In great alarm. Yes, urged the old man. Come on, I want you to come just across the hall, in my room. The Swede must have decided that the hour of his death had come. His mouth dropped open, and his teeth showed like a dead man's. He at last followed Scully across the hall, but he had the step of one hung in chains. No, said the old man. He dropped suddenly to the floor and put his head beneath the bed. The Swede could hear his dulled voice. I'd keep it under my pillow if it weren't for that boy Johnny. Where is it now? I never put it twice in the same place. There. Now, come out. Finally, he came out from under the bed, dragging with him an old coat. I've got it, he whispered. Still on the floor on his knees, he unrolled the coat and took from it a large yellow-brown whiskey bottle. His first act was to hold the bottle up to the light. Satisfied, apparently, that nobody had touched it, he pushed it with a generous movement toward the Swede. The weak-kneed Swede was about to eagerly grasp this element of strength but he suddenly pulled his hand away and cast a look of terror upon Scully. Drink, said the old man in a friendly tone. He had risen to his feet and now stood facing the Swede. There was a silence. Then again, Scully said, Drink. The Swede laughed wildly. <laughs> he seized the bottle, put it to mouth and as his lips curled foolishly around the opening and his throat worked, he kept his glance, burning with hate upon the old man's face. 
after the departure of scully the three men still at the table sat for a long moment in surprised silence then johnny said that's the worst man i ever saw oh i don't know replied the easterner well what do you think makes him act that way asked the cowboy he's frightened the easterner knocked his pipe against the stove he's frightened right out of his senses at, at what? what asked johnny and the cowboy together i don't know but it seems to me this man has been reading cheap novels about the west and he thinks he's in the middle of it the shooting and killing and all but said the cowboy deeply shocked this isn't a wild place this is nebraska yes added johnny and why doesn't he wait until he really gets out west the traveled easterner laughed <laughs> things aren't bad even there not in these days but he thinks he's right in the middle of hell johnny and the cowboy thought for a long while it's strange remarked johnny at last yes said the cowboy this is a queer game i hope we don't get a lot of snow because then we'd have to have this man with us all the time that wouldn't be any good soon they heard a loud noise on the stairs accompanied by jokes in the voice of old scully and laughter evidently from the swede the men around the stove stared in surprise at each other the door swung open and scully and the swede came into the room five chairs were now placed in a circle about the stove the swede began to talk loudly and angrily johnny the cowboy and the easterner remained silent while old scully appeared to be eager and full of sympathy finally the swede announced that he wanted a drink of water he moved in his chair and said that he would go and get some i'll get it for you said scully at once no refused the swede roughly i'll get it for myself he got up and walked with the manner of an owner into another part of the hotel as soon as the swede was out of the room scully jumped to his feet and whispered quickly to the others upstairs he thought i was trying to poison him this makes me sick said johnny why don't you throw him out in the snow he's all right now declared scully he was from the east and he thought this was a rough place that's all he's all right now the cowboy looked with admiration upon the easterner you were right he said well said johnny to his father he may be all right now but i don't understand it before he was afraid but now he's too brave scully now spoke to his son what do i keep what do i keep what do i keep he demanded in a voice like thunder he struck his knees sharply to indicate he himself was going to make reply and that all should listen i keep a hotel he shouted a hotel do you hear a guest under my roof has special privileges he is not to be threatened not one word shall he hear that would make him want to go away there's no place in this town where they can say they took in a guest of mine because he was afraid to stay here he turned suddenly upon the cowboy and the easterner am i right yes mr scully said the cowboy i think you're right yes mr scully said the easterner i think you're right at supper that evening the swede burned with energy he sometimes seemed on the point of bursting into loud song and in all of his madness he was encouraged by old scully the easterner was quiet the cowboy sat in wide-mouthed wonder forgetting to eat while johnny angrily finished great plates of food 
the daughters of the house, when they were obliged to bring more bread, approached as carefully as rabbits. Having succeeded in their purpose, they hurried away with poorly hidden fear. The Swede controlled the whole feast, and he gave it the appearance of a cruel affair. He seemed to have grown suddenly taller. He gazed bitterly into every face. His voice rang through the room. After supper, as the men went toward the other room, the Swede hit Scully hard on the shoulder. Well, old boy, that was a good meal. Johnny looked hopefully at his father. He knew that the old man's shoulder was still painful from an old hurt. And indeed, it appeared for a moment as if Scully were going to flame out in anger about it. But Scully only smiled a sickly smile and remained silent. The others understood that he was omitting his responsibility for the Swede's new attitude. When they were gathered about the stove, the Swede insisted on another game of cards. In his voice, there was always a great threat. The cowboy and the Easterner both agreed without interest to play. Scully said that he would soon have to go to meet the evening train, and so the Swede turned to Johnny. For a moment, their glances crossed like swords, and then Johnny smiled and said, Yes, I'll play. They formed a square around the table. The Easterner and the Swede again played together. As the game continued, it was noticeable that the cowboy was not playing as noisily as before. Scully left to meet the train. In spite of his care, an icy wind blew into the room as he opened the door. It scattered the cards and froze the players. The Swede cursed frightfully. When Scully returned, his icy entrance interrupted a comfortable and friendly scene. The Swede cursed again, but soon they were once more giving attention to their game, their heads bent forward and their hands moving fast. Scully took up a newspaper, and as he slowly turned from page to page, it made a comfortable sound. Then suddenly he heard three awful words. You are cheating! The little room was now filled with terror. After the three words, the first sound in the room was made by Scully's paper as it fell forgotten to his feet. His eyeglasses had fallen from his nose, but by a grasp he had caught them. He stared at the card players. Probably the silence was only an instant long. Then, if the floor had been suddenly pulled out from under the men, they could not have moved more quickly. The five had thrown themselves at a single point. Johnny, as he rose to throw himself upon the Swede, almost fell. The loss of the moment allowed time for the arrival of Scully. It also gave the cowboy time to give the Swede a good push which sent him backwards. The men found voices together, and shouts of anger, appeal, or fear burst from every throat. The cowboy pushed and pulled feverishly at the Swede, and the Easterner and Scully held wildly to Johnny. But through the smoky air, above the straining bodies of the peace compellers, the eyes of the enemies steadily warned each other. Scully's voice was loudest. Stop now! Stop, I say! Stop now! Johnny, as he struggled to break away from Scully and the Easterner, was crying. Well, he says I cheated. He says I cheated. I won't allow any man to say I cheated. If he says I cheated him, he's a... The cowboy was telling the Swede, Stop now, do you hear? 
the screams of the Swede never ceased. He did cheat. I saw him. I saw him. As for the Easterner, he was begging in a voice that was not heard. Wait a moment, can't you? Oh, wait a moment. What's the use of fighting over a game of cards? Wait a moment. In this noisy quarrel, no complete sentence was clear. Cheat! Stop! He says... These pieces cut the screaming and rang out sharply. It was remarkable that Scully, who undoubtedly made the most noise, was the least heard. Then suddenly there was a great stillness. It was as if each man had paused for breath. Although the room still filled with the anger of men, it could be seen there was no danger of immediate fighting. At once, Johnny pushed forward. Why did you say I cheated? Why did you say I cheated? I don't cheat, and I won't let any man say I do. The Swede said, I saw you! I saw you! Well, cried Johnny, I'll fight any man who says I cheat. No, you won't, said the cowboy. Not here. Johnny spoke to the Swede again. Did you say I cheated? The Swede showed his teeth. Yes. Then, said Johnny, we must fight. Yes, fight, roared the Swede. He was like a mad devil. Yes, fight! I'll show you what kind of a man I am. I'll show you who you want to fight. Maybe you think I can't fight. Maybe you think I can't. I'll show you, you criminal. Yes, you cheated. You cheated. You cheated. Well, let's start then, fella, said Johnny coolly. The cowboy turned in despair to Scully. What are you going to do now? A change had come over the old man. He now seemed all eagerness. His eyes glowed. We'll let them fight, he answered bravely. I can't watch this any longer. I've endured this cursed Swede till I'm sick. We'll let them fight. Americans are getting older, and family size is getting smaller. That means the United States will have less working adults in the future. By 2030, 20% of U.S. residents will be 66 years of age or older. That compares to 13% in 2010 and just under 10% in 1970. The aging population could be a concern if Americans expect to have an expanding population, says David Kelly. He is with the investment company J.P. Morgan Asset Management. If you're investing in things like the housing industry or the auto industry, and you need an ever-growing population, then you have to adjust to a world in which the U.S. population is growing more slowly, he said. Different studies show that an aging population cuts into economic growth, and older workers who stay on the job are often less productive than younger ones. But as Americans are aging, last year the birth rate nationwide dropped to its lowest level in 32 years. Less than 3.8 million babies were born in 2018, which is 2% less than the year before. Taken as a whole, the population grew only 6 
tenths of 1% in 2018, compared to 1.2% growth in the 1990s. Kelly said the low birth rate is not necessarily bad news. Looking beyond economics, a growing world population could do more damage to Earth's environment. He said that U.S. policymakers should plan for dealing with a smaller workforce. We really should adapt to a world of slow population growth because it's clearly happening to us, he said. What will replace human workers? Like others, Kelly expects the lack of workers to fuel the growth of robotics and artificial intelligence. He said that Americans need to prepare for the U.S. economic growth to slow a little in the future. Another way to fix the shrinking workforce is to add more legal immigrants. Immigrants usually arrive in the United States when they are of working age. But this is not an easy solution because the U.S. Congress and President Donald Trump continue to disagree over how to deal with immigration issues. The U.S. economy can easily make changes to deal with the slower population growth, Kelly said, but he worries that politics could get in the way of solutions. The real question is a political question, he notes, because it seems even as our population matures in years, it seems that our political system gets less mature in terms of thought process. I'm Ann Ball. By the year 2020, some 2 billion people in the world will be using English or learning to use it. Digital English language learning products and services are worth about $2.5 billion a year. That estimate comes from the British Council, an international cultural and educational program based in Britain. The increasing demand for English has led many people to explore careers in teaching the language. Being a native speaker is not necessary to teach English. In fact, some experts say that being a non-native speaker can be very useful when teaching English. Today, we speak with one of those experts. Her name is Bobby Kruchen. She is a certified teacher-trainer for the Certificate of Language Teaching to Adults, or CELTA, from the University of Cambridge, Royal Society of Arts. Bobby Kruchen holds a master's degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages, or TESOL, from Hunter College in New York City. She has been teaching at the American Language Program at Columbia University since 1999. VOA Learning English spoke to her by telephone recently. Our interview has been shortened for the purposes of this program. How did you get into your teaching career? So I, get, I got into my field by accident. <laughs> um, I was actually an art student in Brazil, and when I started college, a school where I had studied ESL as an after-school program invited me to teach small kids. And I started teaching small kids, and I enjoyed it. Where was the school? That school, that school is called Lollipop, and it's in Porto Alegre, Brazil, where I'm from. 
How did you get from teaching at that school to teaching at Columbia University? So I taught at that school, and then I I transferred my major from arts to languages, and then I went and I I wanted to live in an English speaking country, so I lived in the UK for a year where I did my CELTA training. Uh, which is a certificate program. Then I came back to Brazil. I continued teaching at a at a bigger school called Britannia. And then I started training teachers. I went from being a teacher to being a teacher trainer in Brazil, and I was training through the CELTA program. And then I moved to the U.S., and I decided to do a master's in TESOL, and then my career kind of took off. I taught at many different programs in New York as an adjunct professor until I got a full-time position at Columbia. What skills do you need for your profession, aside from English language skills? So I think first and foremost, yes, interpersonal communication skills, because teaching is all about uh, teaching other people. Um, and a, a great awareness of who my students are at many levels, like at the personal level, at an academic level, at the critical thinking skills level. So there is a lot of student awareness that goes hand in hand with teaching. So in other words, there is the content and, and the person who's right in front of you and you are addressing the person. And then thinking of myself, I have to have great organizational skills to organize materials and the classes and the students' assignments, so on and so forth. So I think if somebody wanted to go into teaching, they would have to think about being organized, having interpersonal skills, to some degree public speaking, because if you have a fear of speaking in front of other people, I wouldn't recommend that career because you are in front of a classroom and addressing them. Some leadership uh, skills, because you do have to tell students what to do and how to go about doing tasks. And a, a great deal of creativity, I think, uh, to create interesting lessons. How do you recommend that people develop their teaching skills? Is there a good resource for developing these skills? A resource is always feedback from colleagues, having peer observations or uh, developmental observations. In other words, the idea that it's never ready, you're never done, you never know it all. And also uh, keeping at the back of my mind um, that professional development is important. So attending conferences and reading uh, in the field and trying out new things. So being aware of what's new. And I think a great deal of reflective thinking. I think with teaching, one needs to evaluate what happened. Sometimes at the beginning of your career, it's good to discipline oneself and do it more rigorously. That's right, a reflective feedback of the lesson I've just taught. But then as you become um, more experienced, I think it's also very important to look back and say, was this a good class? Was this a good semester? what worked, what needs to be improved. What recommendations do you have for those who are thinking of entering the teaching profession? I think the first question is, like, do you really want to be a teacher? I have somebody I know who thought they wanted to become a teacher, and when they actually went into the field, they realized the amount of work it is. It's a tremendous amount of work, so I think one needs to to be aware of that, that you need to like it, because if you don't like it, it's not something that you can just jump through the hoops. And the other thing I think people need to be aware of is that in terms of compensation, teaching is a profession that um, is not very well paid, but also to think about how rewarding it is to meet people from different cultures and to know that you, you learn all the time from your students. What recommendations do you have for English learners who would like to pursue a career in teaching English? Right. 
I would say that um, being a non-native speaker teacher of English as a second language is an asset because, like your students, you have gone through the process of learning the language. You are better equipped to understand what they are going through. Whereas if English is your first language, you may not empathize with what it's like to learn a second language. If you think not being a native speaker of English is an obstacle, um, you're wrong, because it's actually something that gives you another set of skills. Is there something that you would like to add with respect to becoming a teacher? No, I would say it's a very rewarding field because it is intellectually stimulating and you are involved with other people and you can use your creativity. I think those would be my final words. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Have a pleasant day. Okay, thanks. Nice talking to you. Bye. Yeah, good talking to you too. I'm John Russell. It is often difficult for victims of sexual violence to speak about their experiences. But 3,000 of them recently expressed themselves through art. Each created a single square of cloth that make up a special project called the Monument Quilt. Each square has a message from a survivor of rape, incest, or violence. They are women, men, and children from across the United States and Mexico. This month, the monument quilt was laid out on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. From above, its squares spelled out, You are not alone, in English and in Spanish. The Activist Alliance Force Upsetting Rape Culture established the project. The Baltimore, Maryland-based group produces large public art projects to gain media attention and get millions of people talking. We're a survivor-led organization, said the group's co-founder, Hannah Brancato. We're putting the needs of survivors first in creating a public platform for our healing. This display is the final, the 50th display that we've done around the country in the U.S. and Mexico in 33 different cities in the past six years. Four years ago, one of those events moved Greg Greycloud to join the campaign. At that time, no male had shared their story until finally I got enough nerve to share my story, he recalled. Since I was nine years old, I was sexually assaulted. But these women here at the Monument Force, they created such a safe space for me to share my story. Sharing his story changed his life. He no longer blames himself or feels guilty about what happened to him. For the longest time since, I stayed the nine-year-old, he explained. I was a grown-up man, but I was a nine-year-old in my head. But they shared the space for me where I can be a grown-up man and continue to share what happened to me when I was a child. Kalima Young, a member of the leadership team, has worked with hundreds of sexual violence survivors and their family members. She said, Our commitment is to make sure that the most marginalized voices and stories are included. Through the group's workshops in Baltimore, Young has come to see the strong ability people have to recover. She remembers meeting a grandmother, mother, and granddaughter. The three of them experienced sexual violence 
from a family member, she said. Each of them was making her own quilt square. The grandmother had also brought along her grandson, who was around eight years old. He made his own quilt square as well, and it says, I commit to being a better man. Young says sexual violence is especially damaging to the mind. But she says the quilt-making process helps victims to recover, and it helps others come to terms with their own past. Often people who don't even identify as survivors, she said, once they experience the quilt, they realize that they have sexual violence in their history. The quilt shows have appealed to thousands of visitors. Naomi Shandell Kumar walked around the quilts laid out on the National Mall. She said she was touched by the survivors' stories. It's really beautiful to see survivors standing up and not being afraid and being able to find healing in the community, she said. She added that it was also sad to see the damaging effect that sexual violence has on all communities. Organizers say their work does not stop here. The display is just the beginning of the group's effort to take the issue of sexual violence to the wider public, heal more survivors, and push for change. I'm Katie Weaver.